We welcome everyone who is visiting and being a first time here. We, uh, we do genuinely love seeing more worshipers for our great Savior. Um, we're going to pray and ask God for his help. Um, we got a lot to, to cover today, and um, yeah, um, I, am, I am excited. I am. It's probably, I, got, I had the freedom to picking whatever sermon I wanted, so, uh, so needless to say, I, I picked my favorite. So uh, we will uh, we'll go right into it. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, I pray that your glory grows in our hearts today that we are left in awe of you and in love of you. Open up our hearts to your word and uh, yeah, grow our affections towards you. I ask this in your name. Amen. We live in a culture that tends to idolize the good and trivialize the great. We tend to idolize the good and make less of or trivialize the great. I had a, uh, I had a great privilege this week of attending the always spoken of great coach Justin Franchino's basketball game this week. And, uh, and let me just say, I picked an awesome, awesome game to go to. I mean, by far, it was probably one of the best games I've been to live in a while. I witnessed, you know, this first half, I actually started questioning whether or not Justin should start thinking of a different line of work, because the team came out looking horrible. I mean, they were down 20 points by halftime. And Hannah and I were thinking about leaving, but I promised my kids some popcorn, so we figured it just staying a little bit longer. And by the third quarter, they ended up catching up. And we we're like, oh, it's good. But I think at the end of the third, they were down still about 13 points or so. Didn't look like there was any hope. You know, but we're like, we made it this far. We might as well finish it up. And by the fourth quarter came around, things started getting interesting. They started cutting this lead down. I mean, with defense. I mean, making turnovers and scoring points. And before you know it, we're at the final seconds of the game and we're hitting big time three pointers and clutch free throws to tie the game at the last seconds. It was awesome. And, and needless to say, the, the crowd and, and the audience that was there, we were ecstatic. I mean, we were screaming and yelling. Even, I mean, Oliver's favorite, favorite part was to stomp his feet and yell defense. You know, that was his favorite thing, and we were just rejoicing. Finally came to the end where, after two overtimes, Cook Inlet won. It was, it was pretty neat. Um, but stepping back and kind of just, just observing the whole event, it's always, it's always interesting to me whenever we observe sporting events, how easy it is to get moved emotionally in regards to sports. I mean, the emotion is absolutely intoxicating. I remember going to, taking Hannah to, actually, it was our first NFL football game. I took her to the, the, what other game would be better than going to a Cleveland Browns game. So we went to a Cleveland Browns game, and, and before you know it, we're surrounded by just crazy, crazy fans. And we learned very quickly that this isn't a family affair. This probably shouldn't bring your 
kids at that time. We didn't have kids at the time, so it was good. But we learned that that ends up being pretty crazy before you know it. And what was really surprising about the game is that the Browns were actually winning. And that just caused all this excitement inside of us. And before you knew it, we were high-fiving and hugging people we never even knew in this great celebration. I mean, we were screaming and yelling and, and rejoicing. All because there were some men with a ball running across the white line. Good. It's a, it's a gift from God. God wants us to enjoy it, but if you really step back and think about the emotion that is stirred over something so trivial, something so petty as, as temporary sporting events, and then you read this. I read this, and this is from a theologian. His name's Jonathan Edwards. Listen to what he says, and just tell me if you get convicted at all. Our external delights... Our earthly pleasures, our ambition, our reputation, and our human relationships. For all these things, our desires are eager. Our appetites are strong, our love warm and affection, affectionate. When it comes to these things, our hearts are tender and sensitive, deeply impressed, easily moved, much concerned, and greatly engaged. We are depressed at our losses, and we are excited and joyful about any worldly success or prosperity. But when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel, how heavy and hard our hearts. We can sit and hear of the infinite height and length and breadth and love of God in Christ Jesus, of His giving His infinitely dear Son, and yet sit there cold and unmoved. If we are going to be excited about anything, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Is there anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable and desirable in heaven or on earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are. And I started thinking about this Christmas season, and it begs the question, what is stirring up our excitement? Is it the created things, the gifts from God? You know, the, the, the presents, the, the Christmas music, the decoration, the food. Is that is what is stirring our delight in the season? Or is it what the message represents. What we're truly celebrating. Let us not be a church that places the gifts and the created things of God with more affection than that of the glorious gospel that Christmas declares. So today what I want to do and what I, what I hope to do is by, by claiming four truths, four truths on why Jesus came, I hope to stir inside of each one of us this, 
delight for Jesus and why He came. That our affections will just bubble up and we will be like those crazy fans worshiping the God who became flesh. So let's look at those four truths. Grab your Bible. We're going to go into Isaiah chapter 6. Four truths on why Jesus came. Four truths, Isaiah 6. And I know this is a common passage. We, we go over this passage a lot, but I would ask that we would just listen to this as though Isaiah is saying it for the first time. That this is the first time he is declaring his testimony of what he saw. And so hear it that way. And I'm going to read it from here because I, I, I like the translation up here a little bit better. So we're going to go here. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 8. Hear Isaiah's testimony. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this had touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will I said, Here, here I am, send me. Four truths to help us understand why Christ came. Number one, we have an incomprehensibly great God. In the year that King Uzziah died, he was a king for 52 years. Most of us are used to having a president for four or maybe eight years. This was a king for 52 years. And for most of his reign, the people prospered. He was a good king for most of his reign. In the year that he died. The only king that some people had ever known and had just died. Chaos, fear, anxiety builds up. And then Isaiah looks and he sees the Lord. And he is still on his throne. The king of kings remains on his throne forever. This is the God that the scripture says he has, he has all authority over everything. This is the king that the scriptures say that his rule will never cease. His reign will always be. The Lord who Isaiah sees is the king who will always be king and who rules over everything. 
And this king is surrounded, his throne is surrounded by this, these seraphim. These are angels whose name literally means, um, whose name literally means burning ones. I mean, what an awesome picture. These beings are just literally ablaze with the adoration of their God. John tells us in Revelation that, that there are around God's throne thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands of angels that are constantly singing to God. I mean, think about this for a moment. I mean, just right now, there are countless angels who are singing the praise of God. While we were doing some of the most mundane tasks last night, watching TV or, or sleeping or whatever it was, these angels felt that their time was best spent ascribing to God His worth. And what is their song selection? What, what do they sing to God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's almost as though these angels are, are reaching at the, at the leash of language to try to find a word that best describes the nature of whom they surround. They're looking for this word. How do I describe this God? And the only thing that can come out is holy. What, what does it mean for God to be holy? I mean, for God to be holy means he is, he is without error. He is completely perfect. Period. Absolute purity. He has never had a wrong thought. He has never done a wrong deed. He has never had a wrong motive. Completely pure. But we have to be careful not to simply see holiness in this aspect as purity. Because if you take it that way, the angels could be declared that. Because, in a sense, they're not a part of fallen humanity or they're not part of the fallen angels. And so they have not sinned. So this holiness that is ascribed to God is more than that. This holiness is, is without equal. This is... Other. This is a separate one. This is the God who no one compares to. Isaiah 40. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. We cannot compare anything or anyone to this great God. He is absolutely holy. And His holiness is absolutely terrifying. And His sovereignty or His rule is absolutely total. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It says, the whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is full of God's glory. I mean, what an awesome line. 
that all of creation is a continual explosion of the glory of God. Everything that we see the created is a reflection of how majestic and how awesome God is. You look at the trees and the strength. You look at the sky and the beauty. You look at the stars. And Isaiah 40 says this. It says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Scientists will estimate that in our own galaxy, there are over hundreds of billions of stars just in our galaxy. And then we have hundreds of billions of other galaxies that all have hundreds of billions of stars. And our God is in control of every single one of them. He calls them all by name. And because of his might and because of his strength, not one of them is missing. There is not an inch of creation. There's not one speck of dust or drop of water or grain of sand that does not respond to the absolute bidding of God. Every snowflake that has fallen has been shaped and has landed precisely where God had wanted it to fall. His holiness is terrifying. His sovereign is total unto creation, and it is total to the nations. Go here with me. I read this verse before, but we have to, I want to us to see it again. Isaiah chapter 36. Listen to the story. Um, Basically, at this point, and again, the point of Isaiah is to reveal God's sovereignty over everything, his rule over everything. And he comes to this narrative where the nation of Israel is getting ready, actually Jerusalem, is getting ready to be attacked by the great Assyrians. You might remember the context. The Assyrians had just taken, taken over the northern kingdom of Israel, and they've been going city after city taking over. With their great strength, with their great powerful army, they have been going to each city and conquering it. And now they surround Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers ready to attack. And put yourself in, in the shoes of a, a, an, an Israelite at this time. Okay, you've heard of the Syrians, you've heard of their might, you've heard of their power, and now they are surrounding your city ready to attack. And Hezekiah is looking at you and saying, remain strong, our God will defend us, stay strong, trust in the Lord. And this is what the Assyrian king in response to that. Listen to this. Hezekiah misleads you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And what about the gods of Sepharvaim? Did any god rescue Samaria from my power? What god of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? So what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me? Do you catch what he's saying to God? He's saying, man, we've gone through this before. We went to these other cities that had gods. None of them 
can stop us. Your God cannot do it either. Surrender. That's probably not the wisest thing to say about God, the Holy One. Because you want to hear what God says in response? Watch this. This is what God now responds. And, and catch this, this is so important. You can change the slide. There you go. Whom have you been defying? Against whom did you raise your voice? At whom did you look with such haughty eyes? One by your messenger have defied the Lord. You have said, With my chariots, I have conquered. Yes, the remote Lebanon, I have cut down cedars and its finest cypress trees. I have reached its farthest heights and explored its deepest forest. I have dug wells in many foreign lands, refreshed myself with their water. With the sole of my foot, I have all the rivers of Egypt. Basically, God is quoting the Assyrians and saying, the Assyrians said, we've conquered all these lands. We've walked here. We've explored this land. We've cut this tree. We've done this. But this is what God says. Watch this. But you, but have not heard, I decided this long ago. Long ago, I planned it. And I know, and and now I am making it happen. Talking about them going, God planned this. God is making this happen. Planned for you to crush the fortified cities in heaps. Why their people have so little power and are so frightened and confused. They are as weak as grass and as easily trampled as tender green shoots. Like grass housetops scorched before it can grow lush and tall. The reason that you're able to conquer is because I am letting it happen. Says this, but I know you you stay, and when you come and go, I know the way you have raged against me, and because of your raging against me and your arrogance, which I've heard for myself, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will make you return by the same road you came. And watch the rest of the story. This is what happens. And this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His will not enter Jerusalem and shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates, their shields, banks of earth against the walls. The king will return to his own country by the same row in which he came. He will not enter the city, says the Lord. For my own honor and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend the city and protect it. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the, when the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then, this, then the king Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there. And his sons killing him while he was worshiping other gods. Catch this. You don't mess with our God. He is not a coward. He holds the nations in his hands. They do what he wants. He is sovereign over everything. And to and, and, and catches for those who are in his favor, that is great news. For the church, it is great news to know that God reigns. 
But for those who are outside of His favor, this is terrifying. And to think that we can walk outside of the view of this great King is foolish. Is foolish. That will lead me to my second very, very important truth. And we are a sinfully lost people. When Isaiah looked and saw this king sitting on his throne, his response was not, wow, but it was, woe. Woe is me, for I am lost. There is something about seeing this holiness that causes men to fall into the realization that they are lost. What, what does it mean to be lost? And, and can we just, for a moment, allow Scripture to just testify on our lostness? Just let Scripture tell us who we are. Let's feel it for a moment. Let's feel it. No further than three chapters in this book, we find that man is sinfully lost. First thing that we see is that... Go to the next slide. First thing is that man is slandering the goodness of God from the very beginning. Let's eat from the tree of God. Let's eat from this tree. God does not know what's best for us. We slander His goodness. We, we, next one, we, we spurn. We're spurning the authority of God. Even if God told us not to eat it, we're going to eat it anyways. This is the God who beckons storm clouds and they come. This is the God who calls to the wind and the rain, you blow there and you fall there and they do it. This is the God who tells the mountains, go over there, you go this high and they obey. Everything in all of creation responds to the bidding of its creator. But when he comes to man, we have the audacity to look at him and say, no. That is, that is spurning the authority of God. And then questioning God's word. Did God really say? It is a dangerous, dangerous thing when we subject God's word to man's judgment. What does it mean to be lost? Just let me fly through this. It means to be cut off from God. Genesis 3, we find out that man is cast out from God's favorable presence. It means that we are alienated from God. Colossians 1.21 We are separated from God. Ephesians 2.12 We are condemned by God. Listen to Romans 5.12 Therefore, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, also so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are condemned. Romans 5.18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, one sin led to everyone to being condemned. We are enemies 
of God. Romans 5.10. James 4.4. Listen to this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That at our, at our truest nature, we are on the other side fighting against God. We are enemies. We are slaves to sin. John 8.34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We do what our master tells us to do. That's why we're sinning. We're slaves to it. Romans 6.19, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Check this out. We are dominated by Satan. 2 Timothy 2.26, We are captured by him to do his will. 1 John 5.19, And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. We are lovers of darkness, John 3, 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light. Ephesians 4, 18, we are darkened in our understanding. Every facet of our being is affected by the sin you, you, take our, you take our minds, our minds are blinded because of sin. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. Romans 1.28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Not only is our Minds blinded, but our emotions are in disarray. They're in disorder. Romans 1.26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Our sin nature produces these passions and these emotions that are not appropriate. Our bodies are defiled. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is talking about all of mankind. We are morally evil, Genesis 8.21, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. We are spiritually sick, Matthew 19. We are continually perishing, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians. And, and, and do, we, do we see this? I mean, do we, do we feel this? Do we see that the problem, guys, the problem is not what we do. We, we want to go and say, yeah, I messed up there, and oh yeah, I was bad there, and I made some mistakes here. Guys, we are bad. We do bad things because we are bad. Our nature at its root is sinful, and so it produces sin. And so the issue, this means that the problem is not what I do, it means the problem is who I am. My nature is flawed. And I am 
alienated from God. I am separated from God. I am enemies of God. I am, I am condemned. And consequently, I am destined for hell. Hell. I mean, our sin, and it catches our sin before an infinitely holy God warrants infinitely horrifying judgment. Nothing less. There's a professor who said this, amongst all Scripture we see this one truth, that those who refuse to submit to the Gospel and love and obey Jesus Christ, that will occur at the last advent, an infinite infinite and irreparable loss. They will pass into a night in which no morning will ever dawn. We had a hell of a time, or that was a hell of a game, or that was a, a hell of a play. The way, the way we speak proves to us that we have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to hell. A place of fiery agony. Mark 9.43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life crippled than, than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Revelation 20.15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8 But as the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable and as for murderers and the sexual immoral, immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is a place of conscious torment, Luke 16.22. A place of outer darkness, Matthew 22. A place of divine destruction, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the, from the glory of His might. And probably the most scariest of them all, it's a place of eternal duration. Revelation 14.11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Thomas Watson said this, the wicked in hell shall be always dying, but never dead. Who can even bear the thought of an eternal wrath of God that never ends? The thought itself is unbearable. That after a million years of torment... In hell, you had just begun, and it will never end. And church, let us not be numb to this. We want to. Our culture says, let's not talk about it. We can't afford to not talk about it. And here's the reality. Feel this for a moment. This is what we deserve. Nothing less. We deserve everlasting torment. Let me tell you the third point that will help us understand why Jesus came. We have a scandalously merciful Savior. That is the statement that should get us up out of our seats. Isaiah recognizing his sin, 
Woe is me. I am sinful. I am wrong. And the angel comes to him, puts the coal on his lips, and he says, Behold, this has touched you. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. How can this be? Honestly, how can a holy God look upon a sinful man and say, uh, you are clean? That's a scandal. No matter what, what level you are on, whether you're conservative or liberal, whatever your standard of right comes from, we all agree to this, that the good should be praised and the bad should be condemned. Anything other than that is a scandal. And here's a holy God looking upon a sinful race and saying, I can make you clean. How can he do this? And this is where Isaiah doesn't give us the full picture, but we have to read Isaiah 53 out. In light of all the pictures that the Old Testament has shown us with Passover and, and the Day of Atonement, we finally have the picture of what the fulfillment's going to look like, and this is what is said. It says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, deemed Him stricken, smitten God, and but He was for our trans. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His we are healed. All sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is a servant that who is going to come and he was going to bear for us the full penalty of sin. The entire wrath that is owed due our sin. He will bear and he will take on that punishment for us and in our place. Look at how many times the first person plural is in there. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. It's us that was supposed to have that, but this servant's going to come and he's going to say, I'll take it. This is why Jesus came. He left his glorious heaven for this purpose, to serve our punishment to bear our wrath so that now whoever calls upon the name of the Lord it's those who have the opportunity to be justified by God Isaiah 53 continues and says servants shall justify many. Do you guys know what justified means? It means that the sin isn't even counted at all against you. It's it's more than forgiveness. It means that when He looks upon us justified, He looks upon us as though we had no record of doing anything wrong. As a matter of fact, He says, I have a record of everything going right. That is a scandal, and that is the mercy of our God. That is why, why He came, and that is where our praise for Christmas derives from. Last point that we can't go over is this. Number four, the grace of God provokes the surrender of man. Whom shall I send? And immediately, with the awareness of mercy from this great God, here am I. 
send me. Not because God needs us to do His work, but because our work to God is our act of worship. So God saves us so that we can go and do what we were designed to do, and that is worship this great, incomprehensible God and what we do with our lives. This is why Jesus came. This is what Christmas is about, and this is great news. You can't help but think of the lines in, um, in the song Before the Throne. When Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. May this Christmas and may our life, may be excitement and the affections of this truth of our glorious God flood our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, lead us into worship now and stir up emotions. Stir up delight. You so deserve it. Continue to keep our hearts sensitive to the truth of what you've done and um, changes through it. We ask this in your name. Amen.